Today, we're joined by Paula Poundstone, prolific comedian and host of the podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. She's also a frequent panelist on NPR's comedy news quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And on Saturday, January 20th, she will be performing at the Inkler in Iowa City. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know what? You said the Inkler in Iowa City, and I just automatically smiled. It's, uh, I don't know if that happens to everyone. But uh, yeah, I, I I I I love coming to Iowa. I can't wait. Awesome! And um, just do you want to tell us how your tour has been going so far, and how you're getting along across the country? Well, you know, it's not a tour tour like on the back of a sweatshirt tour. It's just I go out most weekends. Uh, generally, like let me think where I'm going to be coming from. I'll be coming from Ohio when I go to uh, Iowa. Um, and that's usually how it works. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it's been for, I don't know, I, I think this is my, I think I am in my 44th year of telling my little jokes. Um, but it's been going great. You know, I think, I, I, I think people are, with the stay-at-home order, which, by the way, I was in support of, and if it, was required again i would be in support of it again uh, uh but as a result of the stay-at-home order when we really were just knew very little about COVID at all and uh um one of the things i mean everybody of course thought about our economy and our kids education and all those things are valid um but one of the things that we lost during that period of time was this thing where people come together as a group and be an audience. And I don't think I really had thought about the importance of that for myself as an audience member before. Um, but this thing where we go and we sit among, you know, community members who we may or may not know, um, just other people, and we respond emotionally to something going on, like on stage, be it a concert, a dance thing, a, a play, dramatic comedy, doesn't matter, makes you feel human. Yeah. And, and, and without that, and I imagine also just, it's something that we've been doing since we came out of the caves, mm -hmm. uh, or since before we came out of the caves, um, it just, it was funny. It was like a social experiment being home during that period of time. So then when I got back out on the road, what I heard a lot from people once, you know, once theaters were opened up again was, oh, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Because I think those people who came to the shows at that time in particular hadn't realized how much they missed that either and how important that was um, to their, that feeling of being, like when someone has an emotional response and you go, oh, my gosh, I have the same response to that. It makes you feel human. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that is something we miss. And, and stand up, you know, your your stand up style, I'd say, is known for its spontaneity and audience interaction specifically. Um, I guess with that said, in your experience, I'm wondering, what would you say is the difference between a heckler making the show and breaking the show? Well, probably intent. 
you know, I don't really have hecklers. Um, I've had people that maybe had too much to drink that night. Uh, maybe that have uh, some, maybe having a flare up of a mental health problem that night. Uh, I've had that where it's, you, you know, you, you know, once, once they're sort of, you, you know, out of the box, so to speak, uh, it's hard to get them back in. Um, but not generally with any kind of, uh, mm, uh, you know, malintent, um, just someone who like, over participates that has happened occasionally not frequently but occasionally but generally speaking in fact it's the other way around generally speaking someone's sitting there perfectly quietly and innocently and i ask them a question and i'm the one who starts a conversation not not nothing ever uh fractious nothing you know always uh um you know out of out of friendliness and love I, I i just i mean in the old days i guess when i first started and i was in clubs and stuff sometimes you'd get you'd get hecklers but not a lot and i had like it was like um, you guys are too young to know this but um it was like uh, the deputy from <clears throat> the andy griffith show was like barney uh from the andy griffith show who had a gun um but he only had one bullet and the bullet was in his front pocket uh, that was me uh, handling hecklers back then. Like I had my one big heckler joke that I was ready to whip out at any time anybody gave me a rough time. But even back then, I, I don't think I had that much of that. It's just well, not the show that I do. You know what I mean? It's not generally fractious. What was that one heckler joke? Oh, I can't remember anymore. Like, uh, and the thing is, like, there was a. I started in 79, 1979, and, you know, stand-up comedy uh, has also been around since before we came out of the caves, I think, um, but it ebbs and flows in terms of audiences' interest in that form, um, and so, uh, you know, I, I got started at the beginning of this sort of new wave of audience interest in stand-up comedy, which I think was almost single-handedly generated um, by Robin Williams. Um, that new interest, you know, that new, like, people wanting to go out and, and see comedy. And so all these, you know, quote-unquote comedy clubs rose up around the country. And I was there at the beginning of, the, of that wave. And um, there was a perception, and I think it was a very old idea, there was a perception that what was supposed to happen on stage was that audience members heckled. Like there was some sort of challenge to the performer. Like, I don't who came up with that? Um, but so a lot of, a lot of comics that were, you know, not very good and just starting out at the same time that I was not very good at just starting out had, you know, the same thing. They had <laughs> their quiver filled were you know ready for their big opportunity and but what other guys used to do is if they didn't get heckled they would somehow try to uh instigate somebody so that they could use their heckler line i'm not sure that i ever did that i might have i might have sunk that low once or twice i can't remember anymore yeah yeah completely from the perspective of the the comedian on stage 
are you, do you play a big role in whether that heckler makes or breaks your show? Is there a way to turn a, you know, a drunk heckler into someone who actually benefits the bit? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just like in almost every other, um, almost every other um, conversation that you have with a, a stranger sort of in life, just like um, oh, there's a terrible comparison, but just for the sake of it, I saw this horrible video the other day. You may have seen it. I, I had seen it a long time ago, and I don't know why I sat through it for a second time. But it was a woman uh, that got pulled over because of something wrong with her car. I forget what it was. There was something wrong with her car, and she got pulled over. I had the sense that it was kind of a rural -y area. Um, but, uh, and it wasn't racial. It was a white woman and a white cop. Um, but so the cop says to her, there's, you know, blah, 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 wrong with your car. And she she's sitting in the car, and she's, uh, he takes out his ticket book, and he goes to write her a ticket. She says, well, what's that? And he says, well, it's, you know, my ticket book, I'm writing your uh, ticket and I need you to sign here. I think it was like a fix it ticket of some sort. So he goes, I need you to sign here. And she was supposed to pay $80 um, for the, you know, for this, uh, you know, trespass of not uh, of her car network. So the whole thing escalates. She says she's not going to sign. Uh, she rolls up her window. Uh, he says, get out of the car. She won't get out of the car. He jumps in. You know, she pulls away. He jumps into his. He ends up getting this woman out of the car and tasing her and, you know, arresting her. And I looked at that for the second time, by the way. And I thought, you know, A, if it was a black guy, he'd be dead. B, there was I think fairly simple verbal way of avoiding almost all of that. Um, so as a terrible example, uh, but um, I do think in many, many circumstances, you, you, sometimes again, you, you have to interpret what someone's intent was. Um, and a lot of times, particularly with a comic, um, again, people think there's this tradition where they're supposed to say, you know, shout stuff out. And I don't know where that come from, but there isn't. Uh, and the other thing is sometimes when people are, are trying to make a joke themselves, um, uh, they're a little ham handed at it. And so you have to assume maybe that the person was kidding or that. Right. And if you go from that assumption, generally speaking, it sort of lowers the temperature of, uh, you know, of everything. But I have I have the best audience members. My audience, uh, I tell myself they're smart, but that maybe I don't think you have to be that smart to come to, to my show. But I flatter myself telling myself that they're smart, but they're fun and funny when I have exchanges with people um, both there in the theater, but also um, on, you know, goofy, silly, stupid social networking uh, or people who write into my uh, podcast. They're always really funny. Uh, so that, again, that that does a lot of the work right there. Um, I usually do a meet and greet after the show, 
uh, I have, you know, T-shirts and hooded sweatshirts and poundstone pussy pillows, which are a uh, cat toy, uh, and copies of my book, that sort of thing. And I always say to that, you know, when everybody's gone after we finish, and I tell people they don't have to buy anything at all in order to uh, come up and take a picture or get a hug or that sort of thing. But I, after the line is gone and there's no audience members there anymore, I always turn to the employees of the theater that are helping me in that setting. And I go, don't I have the best crowd? And you know what? Every time they say I do. Uh, because they're nice and they're fun. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can't, that's not the case for every single performer. Yeah. Well, great that you can interact with the fans in Iowa city and for, um, people who are anticipating your show without giving too much away, what sort of new material can you tell us that you're bringing to the stage? And does any of it kind of speak to the, whatever new age of stand-up comedy that we might be in now with like the internet, social media, your podcast that you mentioned? Uh, what do you mean? Say that last part again. I guess just when you mentioned like the, there have been different ebbs and flows in stand-ups format. And are there any like things that are different about your stand-up now as opposed to how you've done it years ago? Um, I don't think so. I think as the years go by, I, you know, if I, if I, you know, when, when I first started out, I used to do this thing where, uh, I carried a uh, a folder with me in it. And uh, when I got off stage or maybe when I got back to my apartment that night or whatever, I would write down, you know, the sequential number of the set, like, you know, based on how many times I'd ever been on stage. So I'd write down the sequential number of the set. I would write down the date and the, you know, where I was, that kind of thing. Um, and then I would sort of do this very short critique of you know what I needed to do differently uh, or better or whatever and then a couple of things happened one was that sometimes I didn't get around to it and it sort of piled up and then I didn't really remember those particular occasions and I found myself just sort of <laughs> writing nothing on the page and eventually I realized that a lot of what I um I don't. I, I don't really. I, the idea of just sort of sitting around critiquing myself isn't all that much fun. <laughs> I kind of do that enough, just organically, without even getting a pen in my head. Half the time, I'm like, I'm an ass. <laughs> so, uh, I, I forget why I even started to tell you that there was something about the places that I worked, but I forget now. Um, Oh, I know. If if there's any one sort of directive that I've given myself over time, um, it's just to be more and more myself. Uh, I find the more the more myself I am on stage, uh, the better off I am. You know, <clears throat> there are thousands. You you can't really swing a dead cat without hitting a stand up comic anymore. There are thousands and thousands of stand up comics, um, and then there are people on the internet that never were stand-up comics before, but they develop, you know, some uh, TikTok, YouTube fame, and then they can sell shows of stand-up. There's tons of us. Um, when my kids were little and they were in elementary school, uh, my my oldest daughter's kindergarten teacher came to me one time and asked if I would do a benefit for the school, <clears throat> which I did. 
Uh, it was delightful. It was really fun to do. And then <clears throat> I did it annually for a couple of years. And then there was another parent at the school who was a stand-up comic, who's, you know, whose kid was in school that was a stand-up comic. So then it was me and him. And uh, I literally did this for, I don't know, 20 years or something. And uh, eventually, uh, my kids obviously were long since not in that school anymore. And in fact, eventually my kids were adults and I was still doing this benefit for the elementary school. But eventually, um, when I would go to do this school was uh, McKinley Elementary. And eventually when I would go to do what we call McKinley Night, um, there was like a big show. There were more, there was like an improv group and there were other stand-ups. There was a guy that emceed. There was a stand-up. These were all parents at the school since I had left. Like all of a sudden, the percentage of parents that were comedians just exploded. Um uh, so, and because most of us are talking about just the human experience, just a lot of, you know, you talk about uh, whatever, just the stuff that you encounter during the day. Some people call it, call it, you know, observational comedy, because most of us are doing that, right? Like, um, it's perfectly logical that we're going to overlap on some topics, you know, if you're a stand-up comic, you're more than likely flying on airplanes for a large percentage of your life. And so everybody makes fun of comics for doing airplane jokes. But guess what? It's a large percentage of our lives. But those topics may overlap. You may hear more than one comic talk about flying on an airplane. Uh, and so one of the things that I find when I used to sometimes be on shows that had more than one person on the show, I would like watch the other comics to make sure I didn't duplicate any of their topics. And then eventually I just got so sick of watching other comics that I'm like, you know what? I don't care if I duplicate their topic or not. Um, and so I find at least if I'm more and more myself, then if I happen to talk about the same thing that somebody else talked about, which is inevitable, uh, and at least I did it from the unique perspective of me. And then I don't have to worry so much um, about, you know, duplication. Definitely. Those are timeless words to live by. Only you can give your take. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in terms of um, interesting places you've performed, um, I'm curious about, I mean, you were the first woman to perform stand-up at the White House Correspondent Dinner, correct? And I, I'm wondering, in that context, what does it mean to be a woman in comedy in this day and age? Do you feel that you have to work harder than your male counterparts? I don't know if I have to work harder or not because I'm not them. But I can tell you this. Well, two things. If, if Talking specifically about the White House Correspondents' Dinner, it has changed a lot in the years since I did it. Um, it was really... Uh, first of all, the I did it, it was during the first George Bush administration, um, and uh, the press corps, the White House press corps, um, were not famous. Uh, there were a handful of people, like I remember 
Nina Totenberg was there with Alan Simpson. I remember that. Uh, Alan Simpson was, I think, a Wyoming. Yeah, I think he was a Wyoming senator. Um, and Nina Totenberg being the correspondent from uh, NPR. Um, because it was a thing back then where one of the things that the press paid attention to, one of the sort of, uh, I don't know, fun characteristics or whatever of the event was that um, people would, like the members of the press would go with, uh, would attend this event with sort of an unlikely partner. Um, not partners in re in real life, but like just for the evening, they would go with an unlikely partner. So that's why the Nina Totenberg, Alan Simpson thing sticks out in my head. Um, but in the main, <clears throat> Nina Totenberg was surely famous. But this talking head thing that we see on cable and stuff like that, uh, th th those people were not famous back then. And uh, they didn't have, you know, now if you watch, say, for example, as I do MSNBC, well, you're going to see a lot of uh, print reporters, uh, you know, that, whose faces you never saw before. There were things like MSNBC. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, they were just sort of a motley crew, the, um, the correspondents back then. In recent years, they make a bigger deal of that event. They have like a red carpet thing, which the first time I saw that, I, I couldn't even believe it. Um, they, it. It's like an awards night or something. When I did it, it really wasn't. It really was sort of a, a group of relatively badly behaved people in a room, uh, not really listening to one another. It was, it was sort of challenging to address them because they were, um, I don't know, because they were they were noisy and because the, the way the event was set up, people are at round tables eating while you're trying to talk. It's just not, it was, they do it differently now. Uh, having said that, um, Here's the only thing that I noticed that I would say was exclusively as a result of me being a woman. And it, and this this bothered me at the time, and it still does, which is this. So the following day, I grabbed the you know Washington Post to see what they said about this event. They described what I was wearing. That women have that. Like, what? Give us a shit. And by the way, I was wearing a white tuxedo and I looked great. But I don't I don't see, you know, when you're writing an inch of ink about an event to begin with, it wasn't like it was a three page story and they happened to mention what I was wearing. It was like this very short blurb about it. And, and to to clog that up with what the person was wearing, you just would never do that with a guy and and uh so in that way it bothered me um but outside of that you know when people talk about all oh, the struggles of being a woman in comedy because i can't isolate the variables and start over again i really couldn't tell you what part of doing my job is hampered by being a woman and there may have been times where i was advantaged uh, by being a woman um Maybe because there's fewer of us, that sort of thing. Maybe. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the White House, nobody listens to Paula Poundstone and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We'll take a humorous approach to the news and politics. And I was wondering if you could expand on how comedy 
engages audience in these times, especially when we kind of just want to shut down from the news at times? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> people keep talking about the divisions, the divisions. Um, and I, I have had both experiences with that. I have had, um, I think when Trump first showed up, um, I can't, well, you know, in this uh, stretch of politics, I, I can't remember, it may have been, it may have been during the campaigns at 2016. It may have been just after, after he won. I don't recall anymore. Um, but I did have the experience because of course I do Trump jokes. Um, I did have the experience of uh, occasionally it didn't happen a lot, but it happened a couple of times where in a very visible way, audience members got up and stormed out because I made jokes about Trump. And what was weird about that is that, you know, I've been around a long time. I used to make jokes about uh, George Bush. I used to make jokes about Ronald Reagan. No one ever. I, and, I had a, and I had a mixed crowd in terms of Republican Democrats, probably more Democrats, I guess. I don't ask people. They're not polled before they come in the room, so I, I can't be certain. But I never experienced that before. That was like a really, you know, that, that was like a real Trumpy thing that started to happen. And I read some stories here and there on the Internet about it happening. Um, I remember Wanda Sykes had an incident like other comics were facing this same thing. And uh, I would occasionally, you know, I always tell you about the meet and greets that I do after the show, um, which I love doing. I stopped for a while because of COVID. I just didn't want to risk um, all of us standing around together for, for a long time any more than we do for the show itself. Um, but I, I, I started again at, at a while after the stay at home order was over with, I, I started again uh, doing these meet and greets. And one of the things that I love about that experience is, um, you know, the audience hears me talk all night. Um, but when I do those meet and greets, I hear from the audience members and they tell me these things. It's a little bit strangers on a train. A, a, a lot of times I, I think, you know, sometimes they'll say, oh, you know, they'll have a picture of, the last time I was at that same venue, a picture of me and that audience member together, um, they might ask me to sign that picture or something like that. Or they'll say, oh, we've met before. But I think more often than that, there's a there's a sense that we probably will never meet face to face again. And so people tell you these things that they might not otherwise say um, that are sometimes deeply personal. Um you know, people will say, can I have a hug? And, I, and I'll say, of course. And and it, it, this has happened several times, not not just once, several times uh, where an individual will put their arms around me and whisper in my ear. My son died and I have not been out of the house since. And it's so like, I'm so glad that they are out of the house. I'm so honored <clears throat> that they chose to come see me. Uh, it, it's like astounding. But the other thing 
<clears throat> that literally has happened several times. It doesn't, it's not necessarily their son. It's my husband, my son, my daughter, right? The other thing that has happened, and this was even before Trump, but definitely since Trump, where people will embrace me in a hug and they'll whisper in my ear, I'm a Republican. <laughs> I always have the same reaction, which is I laugh, I hug them harder, and I say, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> Great that you came. Okay, so there's there's that side of it all. Then um, I'm trying to, long story short this, which obviously you can already tell is not my strength. Um, I was, when I get a job, uh, my manager calls me up and she, I don't talk to my agents. She does. So my manager will call me up after she's talked to my agent and she'll say, um, hey, do you have your calendar? I have these dates for you. I say, great. I take out my calendar I and I use a paper calendar with the, you know, the boxes for each day. Um, and I write down, I used to write all the information about the date down, but I don't anymore. I just write the, you know, she'll say on, I don't know, December uh, 4th, uh, you have, uh, you know, um, uh, Cedar Rapids, you know, wherever. There's more than one Cedar Rapids, by the way. You got to be careful with that. Um, or she'll say, you you know, are you at Boston? Or you have, right? And I write down Boston or Cedar Rapids or whatever into this box in my calendar. Don't write any other information, just that. So before I do the job, like how I'm talking to you guys, uh, I'm going to I'm going to Iowa in a couple days. A um, couple days before I do these jobs, um, I might do radio interviews, uh, newspaper interviews, podcast interviews, that sort of thing. So uh, was I had I was supposed to be going in my book. It said. Orlando at one point. Um, this is several years ago this happened. So in my book, it says Orlando. Uh, early one morning, I'm doing a radio interview with a station in Orlando to promote that job. And it was, you know, the morning guys, right? And uh, so they're kind of raucous and I'm tired. And they go, and they go, Paula, uh, why are you going to the villages? And I had no idea what they were talking about. I said, I don't know what, I don't know what you're talking about. Then they're laughing and they think this is the funniest thing they've ever heard. And they go, uh, you're going to the villages. And I said, no, I'm going to the Sharon Theater in Orlando. Well, they roar with laughter. Okay, my manager told me Orlando. It turns out where I was going was a place called the Sharon Theater. It was well outside of Orlando in this community. I don't know if you guys know about the community called the Villages. It's in Florida. It is an enormous retirement community. Enormous. They have their own theater. They have their own grocery stores. They have their own, uh, you know, golf course, probably more than one. It's enormous. And it has gained a reputation over the years for being very right wing. It's probably not all Republicans that live there, but they have, they, everybody there drives a golf cart and they have the golf cart parades with the Trump flags and stuff. And, you know, I was going in like two days. It's not like I could not go. So they explained to me what this place was. I had never heard of it before until they explained it to me. And then I just laughed and I said, well, I guess I have my work cut out for me. Uh, and so I got there and I'm like, oh, my God, how, what am I going to say to these people? Um, 
because it's not like I talk about it's easy enough to go, well, I won't talk about politics that night. That's not hard to do at all. I can do that. But I also do come at most topics, I think, um, from a progressive perspective, uh, not everything. Um, but so here's what I did. I went on stage. I told them the story I just told you. I told this audience that I had no idea that this was where I was supposed to be coming and that I thought I was going to Orlando. And here I am in this notoriously right wing retirement community. They thought that was the funniest thing they had ever heard. We laughed and laughed together. And then I looked at the audience and I said, OK, so here's the thing. We have to find the stuff we have in common. And I had the best time with these people. It was, they brought me back five years later, actually. And I had a good time that time. But that first night, oh my gosh, it was fun. Um, partly because we recognized that we had these differences. But more importantly, we took the time to recognize that which we had in common. And the truth is we have a tremendous amount in common, all of us. Um, and it was just plain fun. So I don't know if I answered a question, but I told a little story. That's a great story. <laughs> great story. I appreciate that. I appreciate how much you love to communicate with people. I think I can tell that that is something you you do find a lot of joy in meeting new people and learning about their experiences. I mean, especially with your podcast, Nobody Listens to Follow Poundstone, I, which has witnessed great success, garnering an average of 150,000 monthly listeners, um, if I have that number correct. They tell me stuff sometimes, and people I work with will tell me statistics, but it flies right out of my head. Because the weird thing about podcasting, especially when I've spent, you know, 44 years as a stand-up comic, you know, when you, you're on a podcast, you have zero idea of how things are landing. Zero. Um, my manager, who's also one of the voices on the podcast, there's four of us. Um, my manager will have the balls to say to me about something that I said. She'll go like, oh, boy, I don't think that went over very well. <laughs> and I'll, okay, there's no one listening, Bonnie. <laughs> I, I was going to ask what inspired you to start podcasting. I mean, it is so different not having a live audience. Uh, uh, I started um, on a project with some NPR people and uh, they brought me the idea of doing a podcast. Um, but ultimately, um, doing a podcast with NPR was... Um, a lot more, the production costs were a lot more, um, you know, because you're working with the best audio people and it, it, you know, uh, so there were just uh, podcasting and it's not in NPR's interest, you know, to do something that's, that at the level at which, uh, you, you know, where it would need a really long time to grow that kind of thing. It just, it just isn't. It's weird. You know, it's a, not a good business model for them, you know, unless uh, like, wait, wait, don't tell me is also, they is also available in podcast form. You know, what's funny is I, for, for a thousand years, I, I've been on wait, wait, don't tell me for, I think 23 years, maybe now 22, 23 years. And for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, I've heard, Peter Sagal 
say, uh, you know, we're listened to by, you know, X millions of people. And then he'll go and then X, you know, X million on podcasts. Well, for years, I had no idea what he was talking about. I heard him say it, but it never occurred to me to go, by the way, what's a podcast? Because um, it was a long time before, you, you know, now uh, you also can't swing a dead cat without hitting a, a podcaster. Um, but back then it was a pretty unique thing. Um, so anyways, that's how I started. I got I, I started on, on a project with NPR that, that just was too, too expensive and, uh, you know, wasn't going to be profitable for a long, long time. And uh, we so enjoyed doing it because um, I was partnered up with Adam Felber, uh, who's now my partner on on Nobody Listens to Paul Poundstone as well. We so enjoyed doing it that when we stopped doing the NPR thing, we said, you know what, let's 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 try, you know, to do it like, you know, in the basement kind of thing instead of with top of the line everything we'll just do it with bottom of the line everything and uh we were in a studio uh, uh before covid hit and now we're not even in the studio now we are real you know we're like most people where um you know we do it from our dwellings and we're hooked up via zoom remember when we thought zoom was really exciting i do i do and now that that excitement is is long dead it's long dead it was even dead during i mean i remember there's a family that i was very close to and that i you know grew up across the street from that i'm still close to all these years later um and they're like many families you know spread out around the country and and when uh the stay-at-home order first hit they started doing a zoom call with their family and they kindly invited me to join in and it really was amazing to see, you know, Carolyn and Janet and Mrs. Ross and everybody on a different screen and then their kids and everybody. on. Different. And then after a while, it was just like, boy, that, you know, I could not do that. Yeah. Yeah. I could yeah. Do that and still have a pretty good day. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. I, I yeah, I'm curious to where you got the the name, where, how you came to Nobody Listens to Apollo Podcasts is, or Apollo, wow, Apollo Poundstone as the well, name of podcast. Boy, if my last name were podcast, I would be making yeah, so much. podcast. Um, oh, I just thought it up. It is true, though, that any any project that I do, I tend to hit a ceiling in terms of, you know, just anything, whether it's you know, Twitter followers or, or, uh, uh, you know, ticket sales, or I had a show on ABC a thousand years ago. I had shows on HBO. No matter what I do, I just, I just hit some ceiling where <laughs> there's some listeners, some followers, some viewers, but, you know, never, you know, uh, you know, never sort of viral, never sort of, never sort of household name. Although in my house, I I insist on being a household name. But uh, so that was sort of where the name came from, and and that it just, I think I said it kiddingly to uh, to my coworkers, and they were like, yeah, let's that that's it, um, and so that's where uh, it's it's a long podcast name. You, you know, everything you do creatively that goes on to uh, the silly, stupid computer and social networking, it always turns out that there's some 
you know, like, oh, you know, it's two, it's two words to start with P right after one another. Yeah, that doesn't work good for the algorithm. You know, there's always some weird little hitch to things. In fact, just yesterday, we were taping an episode of the podcast and we were interviewing a like a social networking um, uh, advisor person. And she was telling us some of those things. And I'm just like, you know what? I, I give up. <laughs> I I like the part where you just make the stuff. The part we have to worry about all the, you know, about selling it. I don't enjoy so much. Yeah. I was listening to the episode in December about social media. Not the episode with the expert. That episode where the expert was uh, had lost their oh. voice. <laughs> yeah, where Bonnie and Tony. The <laughs> yes yeah they uh you know they may have missed the mark it's funny because bonnie who's the truly the best manager ever um but she drives me crazy telling me because she she listens to a lot of business books and she listens to you know she'll like listen to a book about um social networking kind of thing um she uh which is great you know it's great to have a uh a, a manager and you know, partner that's interested in continuing to learn about the business, especially a business that changes as much as all this stuff has changed it. Uh, so that's fantastic. But the problem is, I don't know. If she always verifies the source, but but the other thing is, she'll even tell you information that conflicts. You know, so she'll say like, she'll say to me like, okay, you know what? When you post about where you're going to be, you know, you got to put the name of the city first. And then, you know, and then and then you should make a joke and then you should do a hashtag. And it's very, you know, so I'm like, OK, and I type the silly, stupid thing and I put it up. And then it's very possible that the, the following day she may have listened to something that, that <clears throat> suggested something else, you know, and she'll go, don't put jokes up when you put And it's very hard to follow along after a while. I'm like, you know, it's possible that there is no answer. It's possible that just nobody listens to Paula Poundstone and that's that. <laughs> it's possible. So having them be the experts was really fun that day. I, I think that started because when we were in the studio together, I think it was our, it was really early on. Maybe, maybe we were still in single digits in terms of how many shows we had done. And back then we used to have two interviews per show, which I, 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 I shudder at today. Uh, <laughs> But we were bringing on an. I wanted to know what you should do. If you're attacked by a bear, and so we had gotten this. Our producer, uh, who was Tony Anita Hall at the time, had gotten this survivalist guy. His name was Thomas Coyne. So she had gotten this survivalist guy that was supposed, you know, going to come to the studio and be interviewed, and. Uh, as the evening went on, she hadn't heard from him. She called him. She texted him. She didn't hear from him. <clears throat> and he just ended up like totally ghosting us. We we never heard from him again. And so when we got to that part of the show uh, and we realized, okay, this guy's not coming, um, then we... We said, "Why?" Do, so we said, "Bonnie and Tony, who weren't even voices on the show at that point, they were they were you know 
production, but they never talked into the microphone at that point. But we said, Bonnie and Tony, you can just Google information about it and we'll use that. Um, and, and it ended up being so funny having them try to explain stuff to us that we've had them do it a few times since. So when the social networking person couldn't come, we had, we had Bonnie with her conflicting ideas come and be the person. When you come up with with um, topics for your for your podcast, is it just something you're curious about? Like you said, like you wanted to know what to do face with a bear. Mostly, you know, my original idea before we moved to nobody listens to Paula Poundstone. Before we sort of landed on that, my original idea was to call the show "How to Move Out of Your Parents' House." Uh, the idea being that you were telling people that the idea being uh, originally that really was aimed at people that were trying to move out of their parents' house. But the other thing being that the skills that you, that you, you know, require, you know, how do you, how do you set up your, um, uh, how do you, how do you set up your utilities? Uh, how do you read your, credit card bill how do you um even go online to find an apartment uh what do you when you sign the apartment lease what are you signing do they really vary at all uh what is that when what is the what you know just those kinds of pieces of information that the truth is you would require those pieces of information even if you weren't moving out of your parents' house, you might still not know those things. But that was, I had this idea, how to move out of your parents' house. Um, and the idea was that you were learning information that you need to function as an adult. And so, although we didn't use that name, um, a lot of times those were the kind of topics that I was looking at in the beginning, but I think we've been doing this for five years now. And after a while, some of those very basic things we've already done. Um, and so now I have sort of expanded my, uh, you know, the topics, but that was the, you know, that was sort of the beginning of it. And so I do like, for example, um, I like to have people come on to talk about, you know, voting is handled differently in different states, um, uh, you know, but to talk about the, the, the bare bones of politics sometimes. Like we had this great guy one time just come, uh, he'd written a really um, accessible book about the Constitution. And I personally can't read the Constitution. I have a little book of it that I carry in my jeans pocket. Um, I, I can't read it. I, there's too many breathies and where thous. I don't, I don't understand it. Um, so to have somebody come and break things down in an understandable way that we should, as voters and adults, have a handle on. Um, and I know I'm not the only one who falls into that category. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I, so, and we always make jokes. I mean, we, in the beginning, I wouldn't have like a really serious topic because I felt like, well, how are we going to make jokes about that? But as time has gone by, um, you know, sometimes we don't make as many jokes, I guess. Um, but as time has gone by, one of the things that I found is when we have someone on who's an expert on a really serious subject, like for example, 
we had a woman one time that ran a program helping journalists uh, that are in dangerous areas know what to do in some circumstances. And that's a pretty serious fucking subject. And uh, we had, you know, we had her on, we asked her questions about our program. We asked her questions about the difficult circumstances that journalists are sometimes in. Uh, you know, I'm talking about where they might be killed or raped or held hostage. And uh, and it, she was great talking about, you know, the, her, her program and everything. And we did make jokes, not tons, but some. And afterwards, she said to us, oh, my gosh, that was fun. And she said, you know, um, thank you, because otherwise it's sometimes it's not accessible. You know, if, if you look at it with a little bit of humor, it can be more helpful delivering the message. And uh, that's been the case with several people on several otherwise really serious topics. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it gets harder and harder to, to come up with ideas as the years go by, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, well, you're obviously a great storyteller. I was wondering with your plans to come to the Midwest soon, if you are for or against small talk. Oh, I love small talk. I uh, love it here. Then, oh, are they big on that? Oh, so, yes. You know, You're too big on that. There, you know, someone should write a book on the sort of social science lessons they probably already have or are in the process of, on the sort of social science lessons that we learned as a result of COVID. Yeah, I can. Um, because. Another one, I mean, I mentioned the thing about being an audience member and how, you know, I mean, obviously the loss of that on the hierarchy of needs is is kind of down there on the list. You know, our, the education of our students is more important. The, you know, our health is more important, you know, but, but it's still a factor. But one of the things <clears throat> that I find in life in general, uh, some of it was uh move forward anyways by the or perhaps backwards by the stay-at-home order which was this how many people order their groceries instead of going to the grocery store uh order food to be delivered instead of going to the restaurant um definitely increased uh you know exponentially as a result of the stay-at-home order um and then the uh checkout uh the self self checkout at stores which you know is all the rage here's what i think we're missing that we're not noticing that we're overlooking um taking for granted those exchanges with where you there's a clerk ringing up your groceries and you say oh my gosh i like your hair like that um, and they go, you know, is it still cold outside? Oh my God, it's still cold outside, right? That little bit of small talk with, with the, with, you know, with the people in your neighborhood, with the people that are doing those jobs that you don't know, they're just, you don't know them. Uh, those little bits of small talk are, I think, sometimes part of the glue of our mental health. And you take that away. And 
again, we feel less human. And that's, that's enormous. Especially because I travel the way I do. There are times, you know, I'm in a hotel room most of the day when I'm on the road. Um, and, and then I go and I do the audience thing, but then I go back to a hotel room by myself. I pack, I get up, you know, I have, you know, get like a couple hours sleep. I get up, I, I do it all over again, but I'm alone almost all the time. Those exchanges that I have with people in a store with the check, as I check in at the airport, as I check in um, at the hotel, those might be the only conversations I have all day long. And I really value them. There's a, this, if I'm in line at Los Angeles airport to check in, there's a, a, um, a, a ticket agent. If she sees me in the line, she, she tells me to wait for her. <laughs> like not to go to another ticket agent. Just wait for her, which is so, I, I love that. I don't even know the woman's name, but I've just checked in with her so many times, uh, you know, and we, we, you know, and the conversation is only like, uh, you know, where are you going? You know, Chicago. Uh, how was your holiday? Really nice. How was yours? Yeah, that's it. But it has value. Absolutely. All yeah. right. So, so I'm good. I'm so I'm very much looking forward to the small talk. Good. Good. You'll get a healthy right. dose. Give me an example. You know, I mean, yeah. I was on the phone with my boss today and it's just like the cadence, it starts to sound like we're about to hang up, but then it starts again. There's another question. And that's just that's just the way it is. It's like the, the call is gonna end when it's gonna end, but I don't know quite when. And that's okay because if my job is just to catch up about winter break, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. Well, I don't matter as much. Well, over the phone, maybe, but I don't imagine there's as much small talk when it's like 20 below out and shit. Yeah, true. You're not bumping into people and, uh, you know, asking how their day is. You're you're saying, get out of the way in this weather, um, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. But when it's warm out, it's, it's you know, the charming Midwest we, we know and love. Um, but um, what are my last questions for you, Paula? Um, kind of a kind of a pivot. Wait, first, yeah, uh, hold on. Here. Serious. Come here. Come here. Look at that, huh? Oh my gosh. Oh, that is a beautiful, beautiful dog. Yeah. Do you have anything to say? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah, you know what he wants to, he wants to say? You, just, you have to give me my bed. He, he, has, uh, <laughs> he has heart disease, and um, I crush his pills and put them in a tiny bit of canned food uh, just to get him down his gullet three times a day. And he loves the canned food so much that this dog can tell time now. Uh, he starts about an hour ahead of time. He starts getting really antsy. It's, it has nothing to do with the pills. It has to do that he wants that. But he'll he'll fake a heart attack. <laughs> he'll be like, he'll be like, oh man, the old ticker. <laughs> oh, uh, just to get me to get in there and get that, that, that little teeny, I mean, like a ridiculously small amount of canned food. Uh, yeah, it's just all... It, it animates his whole life now. That and um, I have another dog that's in the other room. But that and going out with the other dog and barking at the people in the alley is pretty much what he lives for. That's all he cares about really now. 
I can resonate with that with him a little bit on that. I feel like there I live for the small amount of canned food that I get as well. <laughs> and, bark, but, and barking yeah. at the people. And barking yeah. at the people, right? <laughs> Especially in this cold, you know, sans small talk. But um, but I was gonna ask Paula, um, at eleven thirty-six PM last night, you tweeted, quote, the performances in Better Call Saul slay me every last one. I wanted to know, in your opinion, which show was better, Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul? Oh my God, it's a very Hard. difficult like choosing your children. Um, <laughs> okay, I have a weird thing. I uh, started a thousand years ago. I started with the black, black and white Perry Mason. Okay, wait, let me show you something. All right, can, can you see that stack of videotapes? Uh-huh, yeah. All right, so those those sort of copper colored ones are uh, those are all Perry Masons, and those are and those are videotapes. If you go a little further up the stack, you'll see there are Perry Mason DVDs. Um, and by the way, that whole wall there is all videotapes. Um, so my point being that I have the technology to watch things over and over again, and. Uh, when um, I used to go on the road, I used to ask them to have a VCR in my room in the hotel. Um, because what I discovered a long time ago was if I can't sleep, if I'm watching something that I've seen a thousand times, then I can follow along enough to not be haunted by thoughts of, oh my God, I can't sleep. Uh, I can get distracted enough to not think about the fact that I'm still awake. But I don't have to pay attention to what I'm watching because I've seen it a thousand times. I already know what's going to happen. Whereas if I was watching something on television that I haven't seen before, I would stay up to watch it. So I got in this habit of falling asleep watching things or even writing. When I'm writing, I like to have something on in the background that I've seen a thousand times and don't really need to listen to. Um, so it started with Perry Mason. And uh, long story short, eventually it landed on Breaking Bad. I watched Breaking Bad for, I think, four years straight. Uh, I had it on every night. I have a DVD, like a mini DVD player um, that I sleep beside. And when I wake up in the middle of the night and the disc has finished playing, I just push play again. And I did this for four years solid. So, and I would sort of sheepishly confess it to people. I would say, oh, my God, I can't stop watching uh, Breaking Bad. And they would say to me, oh, you have to try Better Call Saul. And I felt like I had confessed to them that I couldn't stop doing cocaine. And they had said to me, oh, you have to try heroin. Um, like they weren't really understanding what I was saying. What I was saying is I have this compulsive, addictive thing where I can't stop watching something. I'm not bragging. I'm telling you, I have a weird trait. Uh, uh, but so I really resisted watching Better Call Saul for a long time. Um, and then I started. The round oh! I, now, now, of course, I watch that every night. Um, so my point being that I'm really so wrapped up in both. I... Well, you obviously, you, could, you couldn't have Better Call Saul. Well, no, that's probably not true. I'll bet you there are people who've never seen Breaking Bad that watch Better Call Saul. 
I think the Breaking Bad is crisper. It's funnier. There's mm-hmm. a lot of funny stuff in in uh, Breaking Bad. I don't know. I might put that first. Um. Yeah, I might put that. I, I mean, if I, you know, if if gun to my head, if I had to, I might put that first. Yeah. I because of the trail that that Breaking Bad broke, uh, for you know, it made a, a, a Better Call Saul possible. And the thing about Better Call Saul, it's probably more like me as a performer, which is it spreads out a little bit. It's not always like really sharp and crisp. It kind of, I don't know, it's kind of atmospheric sometimes um, uh, in a way that Breaking Bad wasn't always. But you know what? Both shows are head and shoulders above most things that have ever been made. And I love Ray Seahorn, who is, uh, and I guess she was a, I get she was up for best supporting actress in a, but you know, but my understanding is I don't watch all those other shows. I didn't, I don't think I knew one other show that was on the Emmys. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I've heard of them, but I don't think I've ever seen one other because when you watch the same thing over and over again, you don't have time for those other shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but my understanding is that those, all those other shows are very, very good. You know, I think Ray uh, Seahorn has had the misfortune of being uh, an amazing actress on an amazing show on a year where there were lots of amazing shows. Like uh, 1939 at the Academy Awards. There were a lot of really great movies that year that were they spread out over several years, every one of those movies would have been Academy Award winners. But it happened to have been that there were a lot of great movies that year. And that's the luck of the draw. But isn't she great? Yeah. Ray Seahorn. Well, you know, and when, you know, when you've watched it so many times as I have, where you literally know when the actor is going to inhale, um, you know, you see this sort of layered thing that happens to her character you know the way she um you know the way she you know descends into a life of crime <laughs> um uh, which it, it, you don't necessarily see it the first time you, you know you have, i would i advise a hundred viewings <laughs> you know there are people that brag that they've seen the whole series twice i'm like oh really <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I appreciate your answer. It might upset some people, um, but I think I think answering honestly is, is all you can do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope that I'm, you know, I mean I consider this. I mean, I hope that I'm never in a position of having to make an official decree about <laughs> I, which, I think you are right now, unfortunately. Oh, you're both unbelievable. I have a really sad story to tell you. All right. So um, the radio show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And I'm not on every week. I'm on some weeks. Um, No panelist is on every week. We all are sort of rotated in no particular order that I can think of. Uh, About once a month, 
it's largely made in Chicago, but about once a month, they'll go on the road somewhere. And uh, so they were coming to the Greek theater, which is an outdoor amphitheater. I always say it's the only really beautiful place in Los Angeles. They were coming to the Greek theater in Los Angeles, seats several thousand. And I was lucky enough to, to I was going to be one of the panelists. Um, it was very exciting. And uh, so I, you know, they don't tell the audience members who's going to be on the panel until the show. Um, where, you know, we are a surprise to the audience members until we come out. That's the way it's always been. So I didn't know. So I wrote to the the executive producer and I said, listen, can I promote that I'm going to be at the you know Greek with you guys? And he, he said, absolutely which I had never known that I was allowed to do that before. So I said, okay. So I start promoting that I'm going to be, you know, I make videos about it. I make, I make videos showing my preparation. Uh, right. I do all, uh, and the date gets near and near and I'm very excited. And, and, uh, um, they sold out at the Greek and they actually wrote to me and said, listen, thank you so much for your help. We sold out and we think it was in part because you did all that promotion. And I was, I felt really proud of that. Isn't that great? So I, I go away to a job maybe the week before, I think I was not able yet. The sixth vaccine had just come out and I wasn't able to get it because the CBS is around here uh, said that they were um, booked for a month. They, you know, I couldn't get in for another month to get the vaccine here. So I go to this job in New England. I fly home on a Sunday. Uh, about halfway through the flight, I realized I had a fever, and uh, I had fucking COVID. I had to cancel being at the Greek because I had COVID. And uh, the 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 um, executive producer uh, Mike Danforth tells me over the phone. He goes, "Oh, I feel terrible telling you this. Bob Odenkirk is going to be the not my job guest." Oh no! Yeah, I. You know what? He shouldn't have told me. I was ready to blow my brains out. <laughs> I'm like, that is so, so sad. I I can't even. I'm tearing up telling you the story. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, ignorance would have been bliss there. Yeah, um, I think it would have. Yeah. I said, yeah. I said, will you tell him that I watch this, that I watch that show on DVD every night over and over again? And he was like, yeah, I'll tell him. I don't think he told him. Meanwhile, people in the audience are crying that they were following your posts and you're not there. I know I felt horrible. And then, of course, I had to post that I had COVID for just that reason. I didn't want. Yeah, no, I felt horrible. And I really thought I had fantasies. And later I talked to this consulting doctor about it. Um, and he took because I, I was like, oh, my God, I'm depressed. And he said that COVID goes into your brain. Mm. He goes, so that's really not an uncommon um I didn't tell him the part about Bob Odenkirk because 
I don't know. There's a difference between sad and depressed, but I was aware that I think I was just sort of depressed. Um, but uh, yeah, there was a point to this. I forget what it was. Uh, yeah, I can't. I it, it really did. Uh, it really did throw me for a loop. So, by the way, get your sixth vaccine and uh, wear your goofy masks. And if you do get sick, um, one thing that was very helpful was audience members wrote to me when I posted that I had COVID. A lot of people wrote and said, you know what? Do nothing. They said, if you have chores to do, don't do them. Now, I live with, at that time, I think 10 cats and two big dogs. I, I can't not do chores. Uh, you know, they have to be fed. And you have to clean up after them. But I would go right back to bed after I did. And I do think that helped move it along a little bit faster was just getting plenty of rest. And frankly, if audience members hadn't written to me and told me not to do anything, I think it was good advice. And I, I don't think I would have thought of that on my own. As it turns out, I love not doing anything. <laughs> yeah, hopefully nothing but health and safe travels to Iowa ahead of the show. I'm really looking forward to the small talk and I'm going to make note of it. Thank you.